You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Genesis 46. Genesis 46. So we continue in our study. Genesis, and just as a matter of housekeeping, uh, it is currently my intentions to uh, start a series in Luke starting next week for the season of Advent, although we'll be starting really kind of a week early, but it's kind of hard to believe it's like going to be Christmas time really soon. Um, but um, we'll start in Luke chapter 1, and we'll be going through the birth narratives of Christ this year. So uh, currently it's my intention to start that. Uh, next Sunday. So, but this morning we come to Genesis 46. We're going to be really kind of uh, putting together, filling in the blanks here. We skipped some verses last week in our study, namely verses 31 through 34 of Genesis 46 and verses 1 through 6 and 11 and 12 of uh, chapter 47. So I'd like to read those verses and uh, we'll take a look at them this morning. Starting with verse 31, Genesis 46, 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me and the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. If you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. And skipping down to verses 11 and 12. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependence. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story, for this narrative, uh, for uh, your holy and sacred word. We thank you, Father, for the many lessons that we have in this text. And we pray, Father, that you would open our minds and hearts to these lessons. Instruct us, O Father, in the good things that you have designed to teach from these passages, that, Father, we may bask in them, that that we may glory in them, that we may truly be changed by them that our lives may be ordered by them. 
So, Father, we pray that you will bless us to these ends for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Life, uh, I don't have to say, I mean, I probably, I don't know how many sermons I've introduced with that sentence. Life is tough. It's not on purpose. It's not something I'm trying to be trite with, but it's just tough, isn't it? You know, I was thinking this morning, what am I, what's, what, thinking of an introduction. Am I, am I going to do an introduction? Am I not going to do, you're supposed to do an introduction, but a lot of pastors don't. I don't think you necessarily have to. If the body of the sermon is good. But um, I'm thinking this morning, I'm thinking, you know, life is tough. That would be a good way to, to do it, but that sounds so trite. But it's actually so true, isn't it? Uh, we, we come to places in life where we find it, boy, we just need the wisdom of Solomon to get through the, the next step, you know. And I, I think probably the most difficult thing that we do in this, in this life, and I think as I look around, many of you are going to agree with that, at least the parents in the room are going to agree with that, that the most difficult thing that we do is raising children, isn't it? I mean, that's, if, there's, if there's anywhere where your wisdom is put to tab, where it's taxed and put to the test, it's in raising children. Um, especially, and, and I don't want to paint any kind of dark road for any of the young parents here, but especially as you get to those teenage years, you know. And Shine, I don't mean any disrespect there, buddy. Um, but um, uh, we, we sometimes, not always, uh, Shine doesn't seem to be a monster, uh, but uh, sometimes we, we transform into these monsters and... Um, you go, through, you know, you go through those those stages where you know you, your children are are really growing into young adults, and you you have to morph in the way that you're treating the kids. You have to change with them, and just the wisdom of how to let go, when to hold on, when to let go. I mean, there, there's so many things. There's really so many areas where I could I could say, you know, you just need wisdom. You need so much wisdom. And it really isn't, even if you're not a parent this morning still, I mean, I think one of the greatest fears that we have is the fear of failing, failing our friends, failing our children, failing our parents, failing our employer, failing uh, really in so many different directions. Well, our text has so much to say about that because we find Joseph in a spot in our text where uh, really, I mean, we could kind of read through this and kind of read through this quickly and think, well, this was all nice and neat and black and white and everything. But if we were in Joseph's shoes actually going through this period of time, we would say, oh my goodness, does this require wisdom? The fear of failing a father, the fear of failing brothers and sisters, the fear of failing an employer, a pharaoh, um, that's all present here very much. Now, for many weeks, we have been studying, really, the narratives. We might call it the Joseph narratives. We've been studying these narratives. And if you just turn back, it's good to review all this. If you turn back to chapter 37, I, I just want to point something out here that we've looked at many times. But it, let's just go through it again. It's, let's just spend about five or ten minutes just reviewing uh, one mark, one trait of Joseph is his incredible resolve to trust in the Lord. That's what we find him doing, is trusting in the Lord. In, in um, chapter 37, we have the story of, 
of Joseph being sold into slavery, being carried off by the Ishmaelites. And the very last verse of chapter 37, verse 36, we're told that he is sold into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, uh, it's hard to even imagine how traumatic that would be. It's hard to even imagine what that would have been like. But what does Joseph do? Well, he, 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 there's two roads he really could take. He could take the road of anger and bitterness. He could take that road. You know, he could, he could, he could take, he could, he could, he could go into the workplace. He could go into uh, Potiphar's house with a chip on his shoulder. But that's not what we have any record of him doing. No, on the contrary, what we have a record of him doing is walking in faithfulness. What does he do? He conducts himself as if it's his very own house, doesn't he? And he works for Pharaoh as if Pharaoh, was, or, or Potiphar rather, as if Potiphar was his father. And he's faithful, and he is so faithful uh, in uh, his labors that Potiphar takes notice and really kind of takes him on as his right-hand man, right? And everything seems to be going great until Potiphar's wife starts to set her eyes on him. And she begins to advance on him. Now, how does he handle that? Again, he walks in faithfulness. He'll have nothing to do with that. But he continues. He continues to refuse her. He continues to refuse her. And what does she do? It makes her angry. So finally, she falsely accuses him of forcing himself upon her. And where does that end? They know he ends up in jail, right? Now, if there's ever a time where Joseph is going to become angry and bitter, think about it. I got to tell you, you know, this is my life. You know, I lost my mom when I was very young. My brothers all hated me. They once conspired to kill me. They ended up selling me to slavery. I tried to make the best of it. I tried to do the right thing. I worked for Potiphar. I was faithful with him. And then his wife, she starts this stuff. And I was faithful. I never did anything wrong. I mean, I could have worked up the... It probably would have been to my benefit to go along with her, her ruse. And, and, and that would have been great. If, you know, I could have worked my way up. But no, no, not me. No, I did the right thing. I did the faithful thing. And what did that get me? That got me right here in jail. Well, of course, we don't find any record of him doing anything like that, do we? What's he doing in jail? Trust in the Lord. So much so that now the jailer takes notice of him, and he's now in charge of the jail, isn't he? And of course, that takes us to what, chapter maybe 40? Um, yeah, chapter 40, if you look around... Um, Oh, verse 2, Pharaoh was angry with two of his officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. He put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in prison where Joseph was confined. And then the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with him, and he attended them. And he continued for some time in custody. And then one night they had a dream, the cupbearer and the baker. If you look at verse 6, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asks Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. Now, what are they referring to? You remember when we were studying these passages, they're referring to, listen, we're in jail. There's nobody on staff here to interpret dreams. This was a big deal to the ancients. You know, Pharaoh, as we're going to see here in a few minutes, he, in his employment, you know, he has these magicians, if you will, uh, these wise men, what do they do? They interpret, one of the things they do is interpret these dreams. 
Now, here are these two officers. They're accustomed to having this liberty. They're accustomed to having these people on hand. They've had these dreams. They're troubled by these dreams. They know there's something to these dreams, but there's no one to interpret them. And look how, look at the end of verse 8, how Joseph, look how he responds. He says, do not interpretations belong to God. And we see is he's just resolved. After all he's been through, he's still resolved to trust in the Lord. He's trusting in the Lord. And, of course, he gives the interpretation of their dreams, doesn't he? He tells them, listen, cup, cup, tells the cupbearer, you're going to be reinstated. Of course, he has bad news for the baker. He says, you're going to be hanged. And it comes, it, it turns out exactly the way Joseph said it would turn out. And then two whole years go by. Chapter 41, verse 1, two whole years go by. Pharaoh has a dream, and he's very troubled by these dreams. And uh, in verse 8, you see there, in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And he tells them his dream, but there was no one who could ter- interpret it to Pharaoh. And then it gets, I think it gets kind of humorous a little bit, because the cupbearer, you know, he's watching what's going on in his mind. He remembers being back in jail and you have to imagine he might have been a little bit hesitant at first, you know, because think about it. What would that sound like? Uh, hey, um, um, Mr. Farrow, um, you know, back when I was in regional, <laughs> um, there was this guy I was doing time with, you know, and he was this young Hebrew guy, and um, he was able to uh, interpret dreams, and, and he interpret dreams, and they come out just the way he said. You know, you could think that's probably something he didn't really want to do, but it is something that he did. And as soon as Pharaoh hears about it, if you look at verse 14, Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he shaved himself, pay close attention to that, when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes. So he gets out of his orange jumpsuit. He gets a shave. He gets cleaned up. And now he's brought before Pharaoh. And if you look at verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. And I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, if there was ever a time, and I brought this out when we were studying it, if there was ever a time, I think, when Joseph would have been tempted to exalt himself instead of the Lord, I think it would have been now. Can you imagine what it felt like to see daylight again, to get out of that pit? Now, I'm making jokes about an orange jumpsuit, but he wouldn't have had an orange jumpsuit. He's probably wearing rags, possibly wearing rags. And now here he is all bathed up, and he's getting ready to approach Pharaoh. So they're going to put, they're going to put the appropriate garb on him to go approach Pharaoh. He's probably wearing better clothes than he's ever worn in his lifetime. He's all shaved up. He's cleaned up. This is my shot at freedom here. And what does he do? What does he do? Verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. That is breathtaking, actually. It's not in me. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then Pharaoh explains his dream to Joseph. Joseph interprets the dream. We've been over that many times. It's going to be Uh, Seven years of prosperity and plenty, followed by seven years of severe famine. And what uh, what does Joseph do? He makes this proposal. He says, listen, this is what your dream means. Seven years of prosperity, seven years of famine. Store up food. Store up food during the years of prosperity so that you'll have it and be able to weather the severity of this famine that's coming. And and Pharaoh, how does he respond? Verse 37 
I've, re- I've, I've, reported, I've, I've pointed your attention to these verses many times because this is so central in the context. It's so central in understanding what's going on after it. We're told that this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Verse 38, And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And in verse 39, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. And you remember, I pointed this out several times. Pharaoh recognizes two things about Joseph here, doesn't he? He recognizes that Joseph is in possession of the Spirit of God, and he also recognizes that Joseph is wiser than all of the men that's on his staff. He's wiser than them all. You see, there's a little bit of a contest here because Pharaoh tries to get an answer out of all of the folks that are on his staff. No one can give an answer. That's why he calls for Joseph. And here Joseph comes in and he gives the answer. So we see that Joseph is trusting in the Lord. And here we see that he has this incredible wisdom. Now, let's go to our text with that in mind because I think this is going to help us see some things in our text that maybe otherwise we wouldn't be able to see. Uh, here in verse 31, okay, Joseph has already been reunited with his father after 20 years. We looked at that last week. After 20 years, he's reunited with his father. His family is in Egypt. Joseph has this responsibility to care for his family. And in verse 31, he says to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, here's the game plan, fellas. I'm going to go tell Pharaoh. I'm going to say to him that you guys are here. You're in the land of Canaan. You've come to me. I'm going to tell them you're shepherds. Verse 32, you've been keepers of livestock. Uh, You've brought your flocks and your herds and all that you have. And in verse 33, he gives these instructions. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." This is the game plan. Now, in this game plan is an incredible amount of wisdom on Joseph's part. It's practically breathtaking. If you think about, okay, Joseph has this responsibility. We might read through this kind of quickly, and if we're familiar with the story, we say, I know this story. Well, wait a second. Joseph is bringing his family down into Egypt. And first of all, Joseph has the wisdom to recognize the itinerant danger in having his family in Egypt. What is that itinerant danger? Egypt is well known for its high life. It's not just as simple as bringing the family down where they can find some pasture land and everything. It's not that simple. Joseph wants to protect his family as well. He does not want to fail his family. He doesn't want to fail his father. He doesn't want to fail his brothers. He doesn't want to fail Pharaoh. And of course, the most important thing is he doesn't want to fail the Lord. Now, he's going to bring his family into Egypt, but he wants to set up at least some insulation between his family and Egypt. And the answer to that, of all of the areas in Egypt, the very best place to put his family is in the land of Goshen, which is a region just on the eastern side of Egypt. And there, they will be somewhat, not completely isolated, but somewhat isolated from the Egyptian high life. 
That's what's on Joseph's mind. Okay? Now, Joseph's a man who trusts in the Lord. We've been through that, right? He's also a man who's using the wisdom that God has given him. He wants to put them in in Goshen. You see that very clearly in verse 34. In order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. That is where Joseph wants them to be. That is the safest place in Joseph's estimation for them to be, where they'll be somewhat isolated. But notice what else. Joseph counsels his brothers in how to approach Pharaoh. Very wise on his part. He's counseling. And he's saying to him, he said, listen, Pharaoh is going to ask you what your occupation is. He's using incredible wisdom here. How does he know Pharaoh's going to do that? Because he knows Pharaoh. And why is Pharaoh going to ask him the occupation? We might be tempted to think, well, that's kind of what we do when we meet people. You know, you meet someone you haven't known, you know. Uh, you meet someone, you say, what do you say? Well, what do you do? What do you do for a living? How many times have you asked people that just to bring up small talk? That's not exactly what Pharaoh's up to here. Pharaoh wants to be sure that these brothers have no social or political agenda. Think about it. Pharaoh wants to, re, he wants to help, he wants to help um, Joseph and his family, of course, but he also has a job to do. Okay, who are these guys? I don't know these guys. I know Joseph, I trust Joseph. And I, I, I think it'd be hard to believe that Joseph hasn't confided in Pharaoh and told him the story. Who are these guys? These are the guys that like talked about killing you, and then they threw you in a pit, then they sold you. That's how you ended up here? I'm sure he knew that story. Does he trust them? Mm. Do they have any social agenda? Do they have any political agenda? And what is the truth? They don't. That's the truth. And that's what Joseph, in his wisdom, that's what Joseph wants. To, he wants to be sure that they communicate that. Listen, you guys, what's, why are they here? They're here because the famine has just dissolved the pasture land up in the land of Canaan. There's nowhere for their flocks to properly herd and graze. So all of their, they're coming down so they'll have a place where they can keep their flocks. And, and that's, what, that's what Joseph wants to communicate. He wants them to communicate that to, uh, to Pharaoh. We have no social agenda. We have no political agenda. Uh, we're just, we're just uh, shepherds. And notice the very last line, uh, at least in the ESV, the very last line of verse 34 um, in chapter 46. Joseph says, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. You ever notice, if you ever find yourself puzzled by that, why is that? I'm not sure we really know why that is. I think we can only conjecture. I think our conjecture, though, is a pretty, I think, it's, I think the conjecture is a pretty safe conjecture. There's some who say that, okay, because of Egyptian culture is really developing about this time, scholars tell us that, uh, experts in, in ancient Egypt culture tell us that, and they say that, okay, this high life has created disdain for the, uh, uh, the work of a shepherd. Uh, and that's what it is. And that's possible. That's certainly plausible. But we know that there were Egyptians who were shepherds. In fact, we learn in verse 6 that even Pharaoh himself had, char- he, you know, he, had, he was in charge of livestock. So there were Egyptians who had flocks. So I think that probably more likely is the disdain is for foreign shepherds, foreign shepherds. If you think of the life of the shepherd, and we certainly see that by New Testament times, that shepherds are outcasts. 
You know the famous story of the angels appearing to the shepherds and informing them that the, that the Messiah has come. The shepherds are outcasts. That's one of the emphasis of Luke is the outcast, if you will. Uh, and, and really that, that lifestyle, that nomadic lifestyle of wandering from here to there, from here to there, really having nowhere or place to lay your head, uh, that doesn't bring out the best in human nature, does it? And there is a lot of reasons, and I think that's probably it. But, but, but back to the point here, Joseph in his wisdom is using precisely that to get his family where he wants his family to be. He's utilizing that cultural disdain for shepherds to influence Pharaoh, to isolate them. You see that? That's, that's some fantastic wisdom, isn't it? And if you go down further into, into uh, chapter 47, okay, Joseph, he goes in, he talks with Pharaoh, he tells him, my brothers are here. And in, in verse 2, he has taken from among his brothers, he takes five men and presents them to Pharaoh. Now, why does he do that? Why does he take five men? Well, think about it for a second. What would it have looked like in court if he'd have brought the whole family in? It would have painted in Pharaoh's mind a whole different picture on what's going on here. I mean, if the whole family was there and the kids and everybody's there and they're all kind of like this with droopy eyes looking at Pharaoh, it would have looked more like a charity case, wouldn't it? And if I might, if I might on the side, it's not the central point I want to make, but on the side, I think it's a good place to pull along the road and just look at the mercy and the greatness of our God right there. That is not the picture that God wants for his people. This is very stately again. You remember last week I made the point that when Pharaoh, or when Joseph, he finds out his brothers are here and he gets in his chariot and he rides off to meet uh, Jacob, his father, and his father is called Israel by the text. And remember I pointed out that I made a point that this really is political and stately at the beginning here. Why is he doing this? Here we have the second person uh, in command of Egypt getting in his motorcade and hurrying off to meet Israel. Who is Israel? In this text, Israel is Jacob, but I would say, I would say that there's a heavy connotation that it's more than just Israel, more than just Jacob, but it's actually going into what we call the prophetic perfect. What is the prophetic perfect? Well, if you look at verse 3, the Lord appears to Jacob and says, I'm the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a no great nation. And as Jacob comes into Israel, or I'm sorry, as Jacob comes into, into Egypt, there he is being, in many ways, being reflected upon in what we call the pr prophetic perfect. In other words, he's being reflected upon as if this is already a done deal. There's only 70 people right now, but God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And because he said he's going to do it, it's a done deal. Is there any way that this could fail? No. And he's already being treated like a nation when he shows up. And this same thing is happening in Pharaoh's court. There are five men who are representing the community. I have a quote here from a, uh, a uh, uh, Robert Candlish, who was a Scottish pastor and commentator from many years ago. Listen to what he writes on this. He says, quote, 
Joseph would not have his people to appear before Pharaoh as a miscellaneous crowd of supplicants or a company of needy adventurers. They approached the throne by a deputation. The five men act as representatives of an orderly community. This is brilliant on Joseph's part, if you think about it. That is a whole different picture than having all of them come in and pile up in his court, isn't it? This is brilliant. They're prepared to negotiate a treaty. I'm continuing with Candlish's quote. They have to ask a favor, no doubt, but they do not ask as if they're after the manner of abject mendicants. A mendicant is an, a, a beggar. In other words, they have to ask a favor, says Candlish, but they're not asking it after the manner of a company of beggars. It's more like a treaty, you see. This is just incredible wisdom that's taking place here. And of course, what happens? Verse 6. The land of Egypt is before you, says Pharaoh. Your brothers in the best of the land. They let them settle in the land of Goshen. If you know any able men, he even offers them a job. If you know any able men, he offers them a job. Now, so what have I been saying so far? Um, I've been making two points. One is that Joseph trusts in the Lord, right? And the second one is Joseph uses the wisdom that God gives him, right? Now, I have a question for you. You don't need to answer out loud necessarily, but I don't care if you do. But if I close in prayer right now, would this be a good message? Here's the two points. Trust in the Lord and use the wisdom God gives you. If I close this in prayer right now, would you call that a good sermon? Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, uh, sounds like the answer is no by the way you're asking the question. I would answer, no, it's not a good message. I'll say, well, what's wrong with it? Is, is it unbiblical to trust in the Lord? I hope not. <laughs> That's very biblical. Trust in the Lord. Now, okay, then is it unbiblical to use the wisdom God gives you? Well, I hope not. Then what's wrong with the message? You know, a, a number of years ago, I was thinking about this just the other day. A number of years ago, I was invited to, pre, to teach a couple of homiletics courses at the seminary. The, uh, the uh, pastoral theology professor uh, took some time off to do a writing project, and I got the wonderful privilege of teaching his classes. And um, in, those, in those classes, uh, you know, I would help students uh, take a text just like this one and mine the truth out of it and take that and apply it to people. I and mean, that's what's what I was doing with those courses. And if I'd had a student who would have said, okay, here's what we have. What we have in our text is a man who is trusting in the Lord, and what we have here is a man who's using the wisdom that God gave him. And then he preached that sermon. This is what I would say. I would say, okay, here, I'm going to commend you on a number of counts. I'm going to commend you for doing the hard work of seeing. You see that. Joseph trusts in the Lord. You see that. You're making good use of the text. You're making good use of the context. Okay, trust in the Lord. Okay, and you're also making good use of this. Here we see these marvelous ways in which Joseph is using the wisdom that God has given him. He's, he's being wise. He's not just passively saying, okay, we'll trust in the Lord and the Lord's going to work all this out and there's nothing we have to do. No, we see him very actively working. You've done a great job in showing that. But here's the problem. Where's the gospel? Where's the gospel? You're not preaching the gospel. 
These kind of sermons, if I wrap it up right now, these kind of sermons are popular sermons. And they're popular for a reason, because people love them. I haven't said anything controversial. In fact, I haven't said anything that, um, you know, Tammy and I years ago had some friends that were Jehovah's Witnesses. They came into our store, and we, 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 we formed a relationship with them. And, and um, you know, we haven't said anything that they would disagree with. You think they would disagree with trusting in the Lord? And using the wisdom, you think they would disagree with that? Or there's these Mormon kids that used to come in the store, and we used to talk to them. We'd let them come in and play the guitars, and they were supposed to be out knocking on doors, and I thought it would be better to keep them distracted playing guitars. So we were like, here, you know, you just knock yourself out, you know, and, and uh, here's a polishing cloth and a rag, and, you, and it was hot out there, and it was air-conditioned inside, and them kids were in there for hours playing them guitars when they were supposed to be out knocking on doors. I'm like, you're not menacing the neighborhood with all that nonsense. You're in here playing. And we got, to, we got to know them, and we got to share things with them that we otherwise couldn't have shared. Would they have disagreed? Would they have disagreed with the sermon? Trust in the Lord and use the wisdom He's giving you. Would they have disagreed with that? I don't think so. So the Mormons are good. Jehovah's Witnesses are good. I think an Orthodox Jew would be good with that message, right? Everybody's good. So we preach that, and everybody's happy, right? That's why this is so popular. But it's moralism. It's just moralism. What is the residual message? This is what I would say to the student. What are the people going to be left with when you're done with them? They're going to walk out that door, and they're going to think, okay, all i got to do is trust in the Lord and use the wisdom the Lord has given me. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can do this all on my own. This is a do-it-yourselfer thing. That's great won't change anybody. That won't change anybody. You're not going to grow listening to that. How do we fix it? It can be fixed really easy. You want to know how we fix it? Here's what I would say to the student. Let's fix it. Let's fix it. How do you go about trusting in the Lord? You see, it's how we answer that question where we start to get into the nitty-gritty, isn't it? How do you trust in the Lord? How do you trust in Him? Well, you, you trust in Him through Christ, don't you? Uh-oh. Here comes some controversy. We trust in the Lord. In fact, Jesus makes it clear that there's no path to the Father except through me. And what exactly are we trusting? You see, it's not enough just to say trust in Christ. Trust in Christ for what? Trust in Christ for that perfect life that He lived. Trust in Christ that He has taken that perfect life to the cross. In other words, he's offering that Christ at the altar. He's offering that life at the altar of his very own justice. And he's saying to justice, listen, justice, you want to sink your teeth into my people and you're right to do that. It's his justice. His justice requires it. The wages of sin is death. Here is a death. Take me. And justice smiles and says, yes, a perfect specimen, a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus steps in our place and takes the punishment that we deserve. It's breathtaking, isn't it? Now someone will say, well, Joseph, my student objects. says, well, wait a second, did Joseph know about all that? Not all of it. But did he know about some of it? Yeah. You remember how continually through this study I've asked, where's Genesis 3.15? Where's Genesis 3.15? What's Genesis 3.15? Genesis 3.15 is the promise of a son. Did Joseph understand the promise of a son? I think he really understood the promise of a son. He understood the covenant of grace. 
He understood that his grandfather Abraham was a recipient of the covenant of grace. He understood one of the most, one of the most illustrative promises that are made to Abraham is that in you all of the families of this earth will be blessed. And what is Jacob, or what is Joseph rather, doing? His life is a blessing to the known world, isn't it? God is using Joseph to bless everybody. Pharaoh, the people of Egypt, and the surrounding nations that are around, because they're the only ones that have food. Why do they have food? Because of Joseph. Why? Because Joseph trusted in the Lord. But more specifically, Joseph trusted in the promise of the one who is to come. You see, it's not a misuse of the text. It's a proper use of the text. Trusted in the Christ who was to come. We trust in Christ who is already came. We trust in his finished work. We trust in his work on the cross. We trust in his resurrection. We trust in the fact that he's ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, don't we? And that resurrection validates everything, doesn't it? It validates everything that he taught. So what's the call to us? Well, let's change our student's sermon. Instead of saying trust in the Lord, let's just change it this way. Trust in Christ. And use the wisdom that he gives. It's a radically different message. Does Jesus give wisdom? Oh, my goodness. This is the best part, I think. This is for me. When I was putting this together and working this through in my mind, I thought to myself, you know what? This is, uh, in fact, I have it in really big print right here. This, this is my favorite part. Does Christ provide wisdom? Well, let's think about it. Pharaoh recognizes in Joseph two things, right? What's the first? Spirit, right? He recognizes the Spirit of God. Are you in Christ Jesus this morning? If the answer is yes, you too also have the Holy Spirit. It's not as if Joseph got a different Holy Spirit than you have been given or that I have been given. Do you realize how exciting this is? You see, Pharaoh may have been able to recognize the Spirit in every one of us if you're in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's one down, one to go. What about the wisdom? There are a slew of passages in the New Testament that speak about wisdom. And in fact, in the Bible, if in the ESV translation, if you do a search on wisdom, you get 196 hits just on the word wisdom. You have the entire book of Proverbs that concern wisdom. And in the New Testament, like most famously, maybe James 1.5. What's James 1.5 say? If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without finding fault, right? But let's think about it for a moment. Let's just think about this for a moment. Can you have any wisdom apart from Christ? The answer is no. Because apart from Christ, what are we walking in? We're walking in darkness. There's no wisdom in darkness. There's worldly wisdom in darkness. And some of it's helpful, but it's all temporarily helpful. There's no lasting wisdom in that. But, but when we come to Christ, what happens? The Holy Spirit opens up our eyes, opens up our ears, takes us, we, we're upside down on our heads, it puts us right side up, doesn't it? 
Now we begin to see the reality. We begin to see the true reality. We're now actually seeing reality. We're seeing the world for what it really is. We're seeing Christ the King. The world has a king. That king is Christ. You begin to see all these things that are correct and right. And now all this wisdom floods into your soul immediately. When you first come to faith, you can't put it all together. But as you walk for a little while, you, 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 your, wisdom, your wisdom begins to grow. And the Apostle Paul, our scripture memory verse this morning, you know, from Ephesians. What's Paul praying for in Ephesians? He's praying uh, in verses, verse 17, verse 16. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And in verse 17, what is he praying for? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of what? A spirit of wisdom. And this is just a sampling of the verses. There's so many verses. But what I want to say and what I think is so exciting is that when you come to these, when you come to these places where you need so much wisdom, Here's the thing. Recognize what you already have if you're in Christ. If you're already in Christ, you have the Spirit of, you have the Spirit of God, don't you? Just like Joseph did, don't you? So the same Spirit that was making Joseph wise is the same Spirit that can make you wise. What's the big difference between us and Joseph, I think? One of the big differences between us and Joseph is this. Joseph really was forced away from distraction in many ways. We, we, we are so distracted. I mean, we are so, myself included, we are so greatly distracted where this isn't always our focus. Where Joseph, that was his focus. The Lord was what he was focused on. The Lord is who he's about. I, I would submit to you, listen, as we get serious and we focus on the Lord in this way, you know what's going to happen to you? You know what will happen to you? People are going to start coming to you. And they're going to start saying, man, i got this problem. What do I do? It's not that you're going to have any kind of billboard on your back saying, hey, I'm, a, I'm the Bible answer man. Uh, you got problems, come and see me. No, what's going to happen is naturally you're going to grow in wisdom. And as you grow in wisdom, your life is going to be ordered in a different way. It's going to be ordered in such a way where people are going to look at you and going to say, wow, you know, they, they got some things figured out. I think I'm going to go talk to him about some of my stuff. And there you are. You're going to be using the wisdom that God has given you. That's how it happened with Joseph. It happened naturally. That's how it will happen to you too. But to me, the exciting part is you can get started on this right now, today, this afternoon. And I could even put it another way. You're already started on it. You might not even be aware of it. Because it's something God is doing in your life. Is that exciting what? And it will, diminish your, it will diminish a lot of fear. I don't know if I'm going to know what to do when the kids get a certain age. I don't know what I'm going to do when they ask that certain question. I don't know what I'm going to do when they want to do this or they want to do that. I don't know how to, how do I isolate them from this dangerous world in such a point, uh, but don't isolate them so much that they just get a whammy whenever they finally have to face this world. You know, when you're walking, all of these, I could just keep continue going on and on and on about all these questions. Listen, you have at your, you put this hand together and this hand together and you have all of the wisdom that you could ever ask for and it's perfect wisdom. You think God's going to, what's James 1.5 say? If any of you lacks wisdom, what? Ask God who gives generously without finding fault. The requisite is faith. You have to have faith. James goes on to say, listen, don't ask as a double-minded person and off you go. Faith is required. But if you have the Spirit of God, the faith is there. 
to me, I find that to be, I find that to be so incredibly, incredibly exciting to think, especially as I look at, as I look at some of the young parents here. You know, here, 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 here's what you have the potential to do as you, as you work in this, and as you work at this, and as you go at this. This is probably already happening in your life, and you might not even be aware of it. But people are watching you. They're going to watch the way you raise your kids. They're going to watch how you instruct your kids. They're going to watch on how you do and what you do and what you say. And are we going to do this perfectly? No, absolutely not. But still, you're going to be remarkably different. And don't be surprised if people aren't coming to you and they're not saying, hey, um, I got this problem. You know, little Junior's doing this or uh, whatever. And that's exciting, is it not? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do pray. And I pray, Father, for everyone who's gathered here this morning. And I pray, Father, for uh, just to join in the Apostle Paul and his prayer for the church in Ephesus. And through that, his prayer for the church everywhere it can be found. That, Father, you would fill our hearts with a spirit of wisdom, and of revelation and the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Father, fill us with, with wisdom. I pray especially for our young families here this morning, for our young parents. Oh, Father, so many decisions they face, so many turns, so many corners, so many things they face, oh, Father. I ask, oh, Lord, you would give them spirit of wisdom, that you would give them that spirit of wisdom, that, oh, Father, you would make them abundantly wise and abundantly wise for their years, that, Father, they would be able to, uh, as Joseph, as we see him using this incredible wisdom that you have given him as he cares for his family, that they will see that as, a, as a, a, now this text will be a text they can run to and they can look at and they can say, oh, Lord, I can see how you made Joseph so wise. Make me so wise as I face this problem. Make me so wise as I face that other problem. Make my friends wise right now, oh, Father, in their time of need. Oh, Lord, I pray you will do this wonderful thing that we would trust in Christ and use the wisdom that he has given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.